Hello, Jamie. Hello, David. And hello, everyone. This is Nine to When, the podcast for business owners that just don't stop, brought to you by iWalker. And we have a very special guest in the studio here today. We have David Breer from 11FS, which um, many of you might not have heard of him because you're not in the financial technology space. But if you are in the fintech space, then you will, have, of course, heard of David in 11FS. He is making incredible waves with his challenger consultancy and is popping up everywhere, reinventing digital banking and finance and everything to do with that. So I'm really stoked to have you on the show, David. Thanks for having me. How are things with you? What's what's going on? Super busy, I have to say. Uh, no no slowing down with the run up to Christmas, but um, it's it's going really well. Eleven uh, FS is going from strength to strength. I have to say this this year has been uh, a bit of a blur. Yeah, I can every time I open up my LinkedIn feed, there is something new that's happening and exciting. And you've won awards, and you've uh, you were LinkedIn's place to work. Was that right? Yeah, I think we, we I think we were seventh this year. So yeah, it's it's pretty good on on that front. You know, it's um, nice to sort of see the uh, recognition really sort of step up for the good things that everybody in the team is is doing. Um, we won consultancy of the year this year back in March, I think it was. Um, but yeah, we're again going from strength to strength. Great. And so for those of people who might not know, and perhaps my intro didn't do justice, what exactly is 11FS? Um, so 11FS, we started uh, three and a half years now um, ago. Uh, really, the the idea behind it was how do we rethink a lot of the problems that are happening in the industry? So, you know, we've had, um, we've got people from uh, who founded the company who have founded challenger banks like Monzo or Starling, as well as people who've worked in very big traditional banking organizations. Um, from our perspective, perspective really we talk about digital banking really only being one percent finished because mm-hmm. we believe that with all of the changes that are happening in the the industry whether they be from a regulatory perspective with all of the work that the PRA the Bank of England the FCA are doing or even just down to the the sort of competition and technological landscape that's that's just fundamentally changing then actually there's just so much more opportunities in this space to to really sort of capitalize on what's happening um, so for us at the moment uh, with with 11fs we're we're basically fixing all of the things that we've seen in the industry. So whether it's building brand new greenfield banks for people like NatWest or Standard Charter, or whether it's building technology companies to build out new ways of doing core banking, the, the fundamental technology engines of, of banks, uh, or whether it's building, uh, creating content to, to add value to audiences and do things like you're doing here. Um, it's great because we can basically do whatever we want to do right now, which is uh, really a, a very uh, odd feeling because actually uh, every other organization I've ever worked at, you're very confined to the way in which you go about doing things. But if we want to, for example, we did a documentary that oh, came I saw out this. Yes, I watched it two months ago. Uh, you know, and that was really just charting the what happened in the last eleven years since the financial crisis. Uh, I mean, if we were like Accenture or KPMG, we just wouldn't be able to do those things. Um, and How was the reception for that? It was great. I mean, it's what was it two hundred and ten thousand people have watched it in the first two months, I think it is. Wow. Um, and the reaction, you know, we've had global banks, regulators doing screenings in their organizations. So it's gone really, really well. Uh, and actually the the feedback both from, you know, people in banks who were in financial services in 2008, as well as actually people who were probably too young to remember the the problems that happened and actually why they happened in the first place. So um, it's, the reaction's been, been awesome. But for us, it's just the ability to be able to go and do those types of things. You know, we shot it all in in-house we the production was uh, predominantly in-house as well but being able to decide to do that because it adds value to the community is is a thing that um, we're going to keep doing 
Yeah, absolutely. And you're, of course, tackling a, a huge problem, as you say. Um, any our, our listeners are small businesses, mm-hmm. and small businesses relationship with banks and financial institutions, especially on our side with um, uh, from lending in Iwaka, is it, it, it is really quite broken or has been in the yeah. past. So you have there's so much to fix, I guess, that gives you quite a uh, quite a blank canvas. To, uh, um, well, honestly, like uh, big banks and small businesses start in a really bad place from the beginning because most big banks onboarding processes, you know, the application process in its first place is horrific. You know, I remember very well, I won't say which bank we bank with right now, but uh, I remember very well it taking about 13 weeks just to open a bank account, which is just insane. 13 weeks. Um, and obviously that was three and a half years ago now. Uh, you know, people like Tide, people like Coconut, uh, are doing a lot more for kind of SME uh, owners to, to get them going a lot quicker. You know, you can basically start a business with company's house and probably create a shareholder agreement, get all that together, win a client before you can open a bank account, which is mental. Um, so, I mean, this is the challenge that big organizations are really facing into is how do they compete with um, other industries? Because, I mean, even in, in retail banking right now, it doesn't take that long to just purely open up an account. Mm-hmm. Um, and for us, I mean, we, we built out an SME bank actually with NatWest called Metal, uh, which was really aiming to achieve all of these things. You're going to start seeing, I think, tube ads for that everywhere over the next kind of three <laughs> uh, three months or so. But um, that was very much the, the purpose of that. How do you take a a big organization like NatWest RBS with all of the the legacy, all of the, the history that sort of comes with it, but actually start introducing new ways of thinking. You know, we, we often sort of say in our consultancy business, it's bringing challenger mentalities and methodologies and just applying them to multi-million uh, size businesses, essentially. So do, do you think then the solution, it seems to be like, so with Metal, it, it's it's related to NatWest, but it's almost, it's not under NatWest branding so much. I mean, it, it does say by NatWest, but it's got its own color scheme and yeah. it's it's not on NatWest.com, I think. Maybe. No, it's, it's completely it, separate. It's quite standalone. Is that the way that you think that banks are trying, um, one solution for banks to get around their sort of rigid processes? Yeah, I mean, if you look at... Um I mean, if you've, I've worked at Lloyd's Banking Group for six years, so um, I've got a good enough kind of handle on what the major inhibitors are. And actually, people will kind of say that it's regulation. They'll say that it's uh, technology. You know, that the core systems are like slowing them down. But fundamentally, it's culture. Um, I think the difference between small companies and like startups and uh, big organisations is is the mentality of the people within them. Um, if you uh, start a new organisation, and very much what we did with with Metal was a, it was a challenger inside a big organization you know it started with three people me being one of them um, and actually grew in the same way a startup would you bring in people when you need them you don't flood it with thousands of people and this is the problem really that most of the big incumbent organizations have got is the culture is an inhibitor but actually the people around them who are there to try and uh, fix those problems the incentive structure is just wrong mm-hmm. uh, you know if you're an Accenture or a McKinsey your incentive is actually to put as many people into something or for it to cost as much money as it can if you're a startup like a Monzo or a Starling or you know you guys when you were, were sort of founding or us as well actually your incentive is to do the most with the little that you have um, and that's so different when you're uh, that that sort of uh, balancing act between those big companies and the big companies is just why they spend billions of pounds and don't really achieve anything. Um, this is why we say digital banking is 1% finished because 
actually with all of that opportunity, there's so much more that can be done. Yeah. I mean, you can never, I don't think you can ever beat the grit of somebody who's just started a business and has to make it a success. Like, oh, yeah, <laughs> sure. I mean, like when I, you know, sort of starting 11FS very much, it was, I mean, if this doesn't work, then like I need to live somewhere different. You know what I mean? Like yeah. uh, two kids and a wife when I kind of uh, quit my job at Gartner. And actually, if you if you fail at that point, then actually uh, you're not just putting a good idea at stake. You're putting kind of your whole reputation, your whole livelihood, kind of everything that goes with it. So, you know, in a startup, there is no it doesn't work. You make it work. So let's explore that a little bit more. Going back to the beginning, like three and a half years ago, four years ago, mm-hmm. when you were when you were thinking about starting 11FS what what was the what was the run up to that what what was the trigger what was the thoughts going through your head and why did you ultimately take the plunge i mean i always figured i'd do something i think there's this sort of two types of entrepreneurs I think there's there's the type who uh, know that they'll never be able to work for somebody else and then there's the type who can tolerate it long enough to learn uh, <laughs> I was in the tolerate it long enough to learn camp because essentially it was for me learning enough about the industry from as many different angles as I could uh, to the point where actually my perspective was unique enough that actually there was an opportunity so um, you always felt innately like you were going to start a business at some point yeah I think so because again it wasn't really and we, we it's sort of placed on why we spend so much inordinate amount of effort on the cultural side of things at 11FS is is actually everywhere I worked for me was either positive learning or negative learning. Uh, you know, I actually feel like I learn more from the negative than I do from the positive. If everything's going great, then you're like, well, this is awesome, but like, what am I learning? Um, if there's um, a culture of uh, that inhibits or whether you're facing into, you know, massive industry problems like what happened in 2008 or... You know, if there's fundamental technological changes that actually show all of these different opportunities for you or different players in the market, they're the times when I think you learn most. Um, so for me, it was a you know a learning exercise to basically look at financial services and go, I mean, how do I learn from an agency perspective? How do I learn from a, a big bank or big insurer's perspective? Uh, I went and ran a digital banking practice for a big Indian offshoring company, and then uh, last before starting 11FS, ran Gartner's global digital banking practice. So you know, lovely suits and uh, you know, big uh, big management mm. consultancy vibe. Um, so yeah, I kind of always knew I'd want to do my own thing at some point, but figuring out precisely what that thing was is is I, I think the the luxury of being paid by somebody else to figure that out. And so you had um, all these learnings, both negative and positive, that you um, you accumulated prior to starting Eleven FS. How did they all stack up when you when you were the one in charge? Did it was the learnings all the same, or did you have to think on the fly quite a lot? Um, uh, definitely thinking on the fly, um, and I mean we um, we sort of described ourselves. I think for the first two years, basically, as just smart people making it up, um, <laughs> and and I, I think the honesty in that I think is probably the the biggest kind of learning thing that of the difference that I see between um, being an entrepreneur and being a, a businessman, as it were. You know, because actually, when you're in a big organization, I think there is such a um, a front to knowing everything and being everything. Whereas actually when you're running a startup, most of it is exploration and learning. But the honesty that you can, and, and actually the the, um, 
the community you can build around being just really, really honest in terms of actually moving these things forward. Like, I'm definitely not the smartest person in an organization. Uh, I'm definitely the person who will work hardest to kind of move things forward. Uh, and I think that's the 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 difference, I think, between, uh, you know, business and entrepreneurialism is actually being a really good entrepreneur is just never understanding no to a certain degree. Um, <laughs> being, uh, being a good business person is predominantly... Um, actually, it's understanding corporate culture, understanding corporate governance, how to get ahead by playing the politics side of things. Um, and they're all the things that I never really enjoyed. I mean, it wasn't that I was bad at them, but I just didn't enjoy them. It felt, um, it felt like it wasn't aligned to the purpose of the business. So I, I often kind of joke, it's like, you know, back in my, either in my consultant days or my bank days, it was like 80% of my time was took up with that stuff. It was took up with kind of corporate nonsense and, you know, meetings that didn't, you know, achieve the objective. Um, the or politicking. Just, I, I was just staying clean shaven. Do you know what I mean? It was like I had to get up like an extra half an hour every morning, you know what I mean? Um, <laughs> whereas actually now 100% of my time is dedicated to moving the business forward, which um, whether it's, you know, focusing on building the right culture or whether it's doing the great work for clients, uh, it's focusing on things that actually achieve the objective of the business, which is honestly just the most refreshing thing. And how much do you spend moving things forward externally with the clients versus this focus um, inward. You've talked a lot about culture a little bit and you've touched upon that in 11FS as culture being really important. How do you balance the two? Um, it's, a, it's a tough balance. I mean, it's definitely one that, um, you know, over the course of uh, the three and a half years has, has got uh, a different kind of spin on it. You know, when you start a company with, uh, you know, four people, then actually you, uh, you're player managing, you know, you're sort of playing on the fields and then you're talking tactics at halftime, you know, trying to get your breath back here and there in terms of what you need to do. So, I mean, Metal as an example, you know, as well as running 11FS, I was CEO of Metal. So I was running Metal full time and I was running 11FS full-time, which, you know, by anybody's calculation is at least 200%, right? Um, so, um, <laughs> yeah, so, quite tough. <laughs> it, so it was uh, it was intense, I have to say. But, um, but as we've, you know, we've done more and as we've recruited in, honestly, recruited in people who are just way better than me at doing those things anyway, then actually it means that I can stand back to be more strategic for our business and make sure that actually I'm playing more of a quarterback role than I am kind of uh, blocking and tackling at every event that we need to do. And how many people do you have in 11FS now? I think it's just under 160 now. Wow. Uh, I mean, each week there's about 10 people joining. Um, if you kind of think we're really not just one business, we're, we're four or five businesses in there. You know, we're a consultancy business, a research and benchmarking business, Foundry, which is a technology platform, and then there's a media business in the in the, in the mix there as well. So actually, 10 people joining every, every week um, kind of isn't that many, given the aspirations on where we're going to go. Um, I think if you look at the by everybody's reckoning for, for our plans for next year, we're going to more than double in size and revenue, uh, meaning that actually we need to just keep finding the you know top 2% of talent and making sure they're coming through the door. Mm -hmm. And this is quite an interesting setup, and I think it's one that often affects some people who get to a certain stage with their business, is that uh, the direction that they go next can is, can be unknown. Like you can You can start off quite... Um, quickly focusing on one thing, but then you want to branch out and there's a lot of opportunity. And it sounds like you're pursuing several different areas at once. <laughs> how do you decide how many to go for? Hmm. So so for me, it's, um, I mean, we never started with one thing. We started with four or five things. I, like, on, genuinely, I, I think it's, I think it, I, personally, I think it's the dumbest advice 
startup founders ever get is like just focus on one thing because if that thing turns out to be a dumb idea you are screwed you know like actually the idea of um you know it's, it's the equivalent of going to a roulette table and just putting all your money on one number right actually if you're good at building out a operation a culture and an engine whatever you turn that operation and that, that engine to can be successful so from my mind actually spread betting across these things is is the most sensible way about going about it um and what that does actually not only from a um from a, uh, a focus perspective, but actually just from a revenue model perspective. I mean, we started 11FS with, uh, you know, no money in the bank and no brand. And actually what put money in the bank to start with was what felt like 400 speaking engagements in one month. You know, actually going out and doing those things put money in the bank that allowed us to build out Pulse, which is a benchmarking tool, which allowed us to create some revenue, to build out, uh, to hire some consultants, to, to uh, start a consultancy business. So, I think opportunity just breeds opportunity. So, I mean, my my advice to anybody is like never turn down opportunity. Like if something comes along and, and actually looks like something that actually might be either uh, good for the business or good for the business in the future, figure out a way of making that thing happen because opportunity doesn't always kind of come through the door. Uh, and if you're, you know, you're blind enough to not see it at the time, that's the thing that I think you'll kind of regret. Um, so for me, I, I mean, to your point around focus, how do we focus down on what to do or what to do next? Um, it's as quickly as you can master something, whether it's podcasting or consultancy or building stuff for people, whatever it is, you know, master that as quickly as you can, operationalize it, and then make sure that you're looking for the for the next thing. Um, you know, one of our uh, company values is all about uh, making sure that actually we're we're sort of being in a situation where we're always uh, looking to improve. You know, how do we continue to evolve these things? How do you uh, not become too uh, comfortable in the thing that you're doing? Because at the point where you're, you know, we could quite easily go, great, we've achieved success and this is the thing we're going to do now forever. And it's like, well, that's great. But at some point, the thing that we've done to make ourselves successful is going to stop being successful, whether it's the podcast or whether it's, you know, the way that we think about things. I think you've got to continually be evolving and to continually be a learning. And a big part of that is knowing an opportunity when you see it. Yes. I mean, that seems to be um, I, I can certainly relate to that from what I've I've read and seen and, and companies such as, say, Toys R Us, which or Blockbuster, which didn't. Uh, didn't invest in new areas. Certainly didn't uh, didn't fare too well. Well, I it's. Say. I mean, it's an interesting. Like one of our non-executive directors is a lady called Lisa Gansky. She uh, she was the lady who ran Kodak's Innovation Center. Uh, you know, these were the people who you know, were chemists, they were happy being chemists. Uh, you know, she sort of tells the story, having developed out one of the first digital processes that could have revolutionized the industry, being taken out by the CEO into the campus in Kodak and going, I mean, if what you say is true, I need to fire 10 buildings out of the 11 buildings in the, in the Kodak campus. Um, and it wasn't really down to a lack of uh, investment. You know, this wasn't that they didn't see digital coming. It was the culture in the organization that actually inhibited them really breaking, you know, killing a sacred cow. You know, actually, they wanted to be chemists forever. They liked the world in the way that it was. And actually, if you look at, like, say, Nokia or Kodak or Blockbuster or whoever, um, it's the inevitable sideswipe from an industry that you don't see coming. That is the thing that kind of kills you, really. And actually, I mean, this is really what we are to either the consultancy industry or the, uh, you know, the core banking industry. You know, we're... 
we're a non-VC backed organization. You know, we've taken no money from anybody for anything. Um, and we're going up against 30, 40, 50 billion pound companies. Um, and in today's world where actually, you know, podcasts can create authenticity with people and create a community around the thing that you're doing, um, or that actually through connectivity into uh, senior decision makers in really big organizations, whether it's tech firms or banks or whatever, uh, you can actually get to people to to show them that there is fundamentally a better way to to change what they're doing, then actually anybody can do this stuff. Uh, you know, I'd like to uh, genuinely, I'd like to pretend that I'm like some sort of strategic geniuses, <laughs> but um, but I go back to what we're saying. We're just you know reasonably smart people making it up. Mm-hmm. And I think from what you're saying, there is um, y- you've embedded within your culture this attitude to. Uh, Constantly, never taking anything for granted and always reassessing it and always going for new opportunities when they present themselves um, or even if they don't present themselves, finding a way for them to present themselves. My my next question is, how high do you think um, the highest hanging fruit is? Like, When does something to go after become just unrealistic and you wouldn't do it? Um, I, I think the um, the only time where it feels it feels like... Um you know, being being small is a is an inhibitor. Is when the capital investment to actually make that thing happen. I mean, if I was to go, oh, great, we're going to start a uh, competitor to McDonald's, and we're going to like have to invest in you know a thousand restaurants. Do we call McDonald's a restaurant? Yeah, yeah well, let's call yeah, it a restaurant, we'll right? Call it a restaurant. That's fine. Okay, good. Um, good. That's true. Sit down. That's true. <laughs> um, so at, you know, at that point, then actually, that's a difficult thing to do, right? I think this is the the difference between probably like the physical, you know, the analog age and the digital age is in the digital age, actually with a good website and with um, with a, enough um, sort of credibility, authenticity and voice in the industry, you can compete with anybody. I mean, if you look, uh, as I was sort of saying, actually, from our perspective, we're competing with like Accenture and McKinsey and I guess people like Temonos now on a core banking engine perspective. So. Um, for us to have, you know, the number of people that we've got and for Accenture to have, I think, like 300,000 people or something, um, then actually for us to even consider competing with those guys, I imagine if you're in the board of Accenture, feels like some sort of insult that this upstart is. Mm-hmm. But actually, at the same time, we know that we're winning work from those guys. Um and this is the thing, really. I think if you can if you can create a brand, if you can engage with people in the way that you need to, if you can stand for something different and unique, and not just be a you know a, a low cost option or you know be uh, um, a um, a very similar alternative, then actually you've got the potential in a digital age to compete with anybody. Good, good advice. Let's so to let, to round this up um, this section. If there was a business out there, um, and I'm sure there are many, who wanted to, who had similar ambitions to you, let's say, and it was this growth and opportunity and really to make the mark and challenge the giants, what would you summarize your advice to them? Um, Honestly, um, make sure you've learned the industry first. Um, I think definitely the the route that I took, you know, the two routes I said earlier on around, uh, you either know you can't work for anybody ever or you can work for everybody long enough. Uh, stick it out as long as you can. Learn as much as you can from the industry uh, from within. And actually, it's going to make the acceleration of the business when you start it much more powerful. Um, I think if you're learning all of the problems of the industry on your own investment terms, then it's going to be a lot more painful learning those lessons. Mm, yeah. Like, yeah, I mean, compared to on somebody else's money, it's kind of 
definitely. When it's your own pocket, it's going to be uh, it's going to be twice as painful every 100, failure. Hundred uh, percent. That's quite that's that's quite good. All right, thank you, thank you, David. We'll move on to the the next section, which we're um, we're going to challenge you with the the big biz whiz quiz, where we have put together um, ten. Uh, questions and one bonus question, oh. and we're going to see how well you do. Um, last week, I think Alex got, I think it was a six out of ten, which is not bad. I beat me. I only got three out of ten when wow. I tried it prior. So this one is, um, but is quite fintech focused. So let's uh, let's see. You uh, ready? I mean, the worry here is I'm both terrible at quizzes, but also insanely comp- like uh, competitive. So like uh, I'm going to be very disappointed going <laughs> this out. Is, of this is uh, this is exactly how I feel about this, this sort of work. <laughs> but um, I, I think I think you'll do well. All right. right. Let's okay. see. Let's go. Recently, the COO of a big fintech bank quit in order to start a new venture. What was the name of the company that he quit, and what is the new business venture he is pursuing? Man, I have literally no idea. Uh, no, no idea at all. I only saw this because it came up. Um, it came up on my Facebook feed actually. Someone had done an article about it. It was um, Tom Fastercarter from Monzo. Uh, He's starting a grocery venture. Wow, startup grocery to. Um, Challenge the likes of Ocado. Interesting. I mean, there's, there's a lot of a uh, lot of amazing people leaving Monzo to go and start other startups. It's uh, Monzo Mafia is going to be a thing in a couple Monzo of years for sure. Monzo Mafia, definitely. That's the sort of thing that you have with agencies is that they end up just seeding people out and then they get all the business back in the end. Which fintech famously used naked marches to protest hidden fees, uh, bank fees in the city of London? I mean, was that transfer wise? No, that was transfer wise. Yeah, nice. That was that was quite a while ago. It was. Um, on average, how many pubs closed per week in 2018? 5, 10, or 15? 10? 15. 15 pubs close every week? I know. It's crazy, isn't it? I mean, we need to do more. Uh, yeah, maybe there should be a sort of a tech revolution for pubs. <laughs> it's because we're all drinking in the office these days, you see. We need to we need to go out to the pubs more. I think yeah. that must be why. Well, you've walked through and you've seen the beer fridges that we've got in here. True. So that's uh, that's absolutely true. Uh, which UK supermarket has the largest percentage market share? Aldi, Asda or Co-op? Aldi? No? No. Uh, Asda. Really? Yeah. I mean, Aldi's everywhere these days. Yes, they're 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 pretty. Um, even Tesco's like trying to compete with them with their um, Jacks thing. Uh, right, next one. Question number five. Uh, which this is a hard one. I don't know this one. Or I didn't know this one. Which multi-technology giant has been trialing a four-day working week in, in Japan? Huawei, maybe. No. Nope. No. Think. Think uh, mainstream sort of. Operating platforms, operating systems. Really? What? Microsoft? Yeah. Really? Yeah. Wow. Apparently. Interesting. I mean, I've I've seen you know there's lots of kind of uh, academic kind of research on four day weeks make people more productive, but I just I mean I don't buy that. Do you? Well, no. I think it depends on your industry. So I might actually I have a friend who. Um, who runs a PR agency, mm. and he um, he was very very successful um, because he um, he went to a four day working week and said everybody's Friday off and didn't reduce the pay. Um, of course, that's a really PRable thing, right? So he got a load of business off the back of it, and everybody was happy. Very true. Um, so I think, but that kind of works more for PR, let's say, when the journalists are not that contactable on Fridays. But for other industries, I certainly couldn't do it for sure. Uh, name the all-in-one bank card app that's recently um, launched a big marketing campaign. Curve. Yes. You can't miss that one, right? No, it is all over the tubes at the moment. Absolutely. Um, which 
Airline was recently named the UK's filthiest airline by which? Filthiest airline? I, I mean, mean you, I, you can, can take that a few different ways, right? Yeah. But I was like, Virgin? Don't, but no, probably BA, I reckon. Filthy? What, as in like the not cleanest? Yeah, definitely. No, apparently it's Ryanair. Really? According to which? I mean, not in my experience. BA is always just awful. Really? Yeah, uh, not, uh, not good experiences. Okay, all right. Right, um, this is another hard one. Uh, sorry, Dave, we're giving you the really, really tough ones. Sorry. To the nearest thousand, what did the price of Bitcoin peak at in the summer of 2018? Oh, my goodness. Uh, I don't know, 15,000? 15, 15, uh, I have 17,000. Dang it. Sorry, mate. Simon's um, not going to talk to me back in the office on that one for sure. <laughs> um, which northern city is the second biggest financial hub in the UK? Leeds. Yes, you're right, Leeds. And then we have our bonus round, which I'm in, I think I'm going to lose this one, which I've been told here is um, have to do basically the bonus round is, you know, when you do one of those um, things where you name a topic and then you have to keep on going until somebody falters. OK, yeah. Right, the topic is fintechs. OK, so um, I'll go first to Monzo. Starling. Uh, Revolut. Transformers. Uh, dozens. Uh, Bud. Coconut. Up, yes. Iwaka. I mean, Barclays, they definitely claim a fintech. Uh, metal. Oh, <laughs> you got me there. Uh, N26. Um, no, no, I'm, uh, no, I'm done. I mean, if I'd have lost that one, I would have been disgraced, wouldn't I, really? But, uh... I, yeah, I mean, that. yeah. But, <laughs> but, I mean, I, I mean, I should know. And I, this, this is the problem with these things. I completely blank. I mean, I think it's just pressure. That's what it is. Yeah, it's, it's how do you, yeah. Well. How do, you, how do you handle that? Well, thank goodness for that bonus round, else that would have been a really bad score, right? Yes, you got five out of ten slash eleven. So well done, mate. They were the hardest questions that we've tried so far. Um, That's fine. I think next time we'll make them slightly easier. I mean, I'm going to go into training from now on. It's like university okay. challenge every day. Okay. Well, we'll have you back on the show. Let's say in like three months' time, or we'll do a, like a, a, another showdown and see, see how you do. Thank you. Okay. Right, and now on to our final section of the show, which is Brilliant or Bonkers, where we look at uh, inspirational quotes from all around the big wide world and decide whether they are brilliant or bonkers for small businesses. Uh, and I have a quote here from a lady called Virginia Satir, who is an American author and therapist. Uh, and I would love to know your thoughts, David, as to um, this quote. We must not allow other people's limited perceptions to define us. Yeah, I think there's, I mean, there's lots of um, good idea in that, because essentially, if you just take other people's frame of reference all the time, then actually, you're probably never going to achieve anything other than what they've achieved. Um, and it's a difficult one. I think a lot of people, when you start a business, will probably think you're crazy for doing it or uh, wonder why you will jeopardize your you know, career or your family's kind of well-being to, to, to do it. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there's lots of there's lots of goodness in that for sure. I, I'd sort of say it's it's one of those ones for me. It's always you've got to you've got to kind of have truth or have belief in the thing that you're doing. And if you fundamentally believe in the thing that you're creating, whether it's the purpose of the business or the sort of on the, the macro level or on the micro, the decisions that you make on a day-to-day -day basis, then things will be a lot easier for you to probably sleep at night. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I mean, lots of lots of goodness in there. Clearly a smart lady. Yeah, she, she, she seems uh, seems pretty smart. I think the bit that I find quite, um, the bit that I wanted to explore a little bit more is how much do you have to understand how people perceive something to 
play the game, as it were. Like, um, if you're too much of a free radical uh, and do and don't care exactly what anybody thinks of you, mm. can you still be successful, or do you think that that puts limits on the success that you can achieve? I mean, it depends on who you're talking about to a certain degree. I think it's. Um you know, there are a lot of people who, um, you know, competitors who will try and either, you know, badmouth your name or kind of put what you're trying to achieve down because it's bad for them. Um, but even, I mean, even the best drugs have to have a sugar coating, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so actually, if you really want them to be uh, received well, then you definitely have to care what some people think and probably your customers are the best people to, to care about. Um, but I think it um, it kind of comes down to a lot of uh, a lot of people worry too much about people who don't matter in the context of the grand scheme of what they're trying to achieve. Um, But yeah, no, figure out the people who matter in that space, be in a situation where you really understand what they need and what their needs actually are, um, achieve those things, and you'll probably find the people who matter care. Mm -hmm. And so you you, obviously throughout this whole talk, you've talked a lot about um, understanding the problems that your customers are facing, like how... um, do you have any tips for that? Any strategies? Or you just is it just like talking to them and getting to know them? Or do you do research or all of the above? I mean, from, from my instance, it was living it, you know, having been a banker for six years and sort of experienced technological debt in a way that I just don't think people understand when you haven't felt it firsthand. Um, you know, those experiences for me was really, uh, you know, it was uh, voyeur research for me. <laughs> um, you know, I think when you're starting a startup or if you're doing something, um, particularly in the, you know, the the, the sort of digital sense, uh, we use a framework called Jobs to be Done, which mm-hmm. is the way in which we try and really understand what the brutal realities of day-to-day life actually are. Um, you know, that al- actually allows you to try and get out of your own way to a certain degree because everybody carries biases into everything. You know, they believe that, um, you know, I live in this world, therefore everybody must be similar to me. And the realities are is that that just isn't the case. You know, people do weird and wonderful things that you just wouldn't expect them to do. Um, And using something like a jobs to be done framework, which uh, actually was created by a guy called Clayton Christensen, which uh, if anybody's ever read Innovator's Dilemma was the guy behind that. Um, Super, super smart guy, you know, built out a bunch of methodologies to try and allow people to to really see beyond uh, personal bias. but yeah, those things for us help us really understand what it is that consumers actually need, but also fundamentally, what are those unmet needs actually in the industry? You know, there's no point coming to market with the same thing in the same way that everybody else has done. So fundamentally, what are the things that customers would actually value, but actually other people haven't met them in the way that you would want to meet them? Mm-hmm. Okay. So we must not allow other people's limited perceptions to define us. Brilliant or bonkers? Um, I'd say it's brilliant, but watch who it is that you're actually caring about. Good caveat there. I would also say brilliant. And um, brilliant. Well, thank you. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. Thanks, David. That is the end of our show. Um, I realize it is a million degrees in here because it's incredibly <laughs> hot. Um, so we'll, we'll end it there. But thank you very much for coming on. And um, we hope to have you on again soon. No problem at all. Thank you very much for having me. And thanks, everyone, for listening. If you have any thoughts, comments, or feedback, let us know at podcast.iwaka.co.uk. But that's it. Uh, Until next week, have a good week, have a good weekend, and we'll see you soon.